When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. My name is Ann Taylor Fleming, and I'm the Associate Director of the Sun Valley Writers Conference. Welcome all to this episode of Beyond the Page. I now have the pleasure of talking to Alexandra Crapanzano, a wonderful food writer, a wonderful writer. She has written a couple of terrific cookbooks, The London Cookbook and Eat Cook LA, and her work has been widely anthologized, most notably in Best American Food Writing. Let me just say, I have all of Alexandra's cookbooks, and I use them all. Unlike a lot of the cookbooks that are gathering dust on my uh, shelves, her new cookbook, Gâteau, The Surprising Simplicity of French Cakes, has hit a wonderful nerve among lots of readers and lots of people I know. And because I really like her stuff, I'm just gonna go ahead and plug it and say, it's a great Christmas gift. Welcome, Alexandra, to Beyond the Page, and congratulations on the reception for Gâteau. Thank you, Anne. Great to be on. I want to start with the origin story of the book, because it's such a simple idea, and yet it's so compelling. It was a pandemic book. It started in the early days of the pandemic, and it drove me crazy. I had grown up for part of my life in in Paris. And I am not a French citizen, I'm an American citizen, so I don't get to go back and forth when the border is closed. And in the early months of the pandemic, I felt a kind of extreme duress at the idea that I couldn't get to France because it really is my second home. And I began to really gravitate towards reading French, listening to French. I've always cooked French food, I've always baked French cakes, but it became a way, I think, of really cooking and writing and reading my way home. And I say reading because I immediately ordered dozens and dozens and dozens of books from Amazon France, and even though none of them are actually necessarily about cakes, I wanted to hear the language. I wanted my days to be infused with French. Then, of course, I thought, like everybody, oh, it's a short pandemic, it'll be, you know, 50 days. I'll write I'll write a little book about cakes, maybe 50 recipes. I'll perfect one a day. It will be one of those impulse purchases at the checkout counter of Barnes & Noble. Very sweet, good gift book. And so I just started. I started baking a cake a day and really making sure that I had it down kind of perfectly. And then around cake 125, It occurred to me that, wait a second, this is not a short book. This is not a short pandemic. What is it that I'm actually really doing here? And and at that point, I looked around and I, I realized that there is not a single book about what the French bake at home. There's a there's a complete misperception that the French either always go off and buy petisserie, which they do, but not always, or that they, you know, have these genetic superpowers and come home and make these incredibly complex desserts also not true. So I really wanted to to give readers and bakers a sense of what it is that the French actually do when they bake at home. And they do bake at home because they're incredibly frugal and practical at heart. 
So when you first started to think about it, did you think about those cakes that you knew as a child? The book starts with that yogurt cake, and you and I were laughing because I told you I immediately got the book and made a yogurt cake. It was the easiest cake I have ever met. I had it for a couple of days. I kept repurposing it with either creme fraiche or berries, and a kid could make it. So was that your starting point, the food you knew as a child, the cakes you knew as a child in Paris? Yes, 100%. You know, I didn't actually start school in Paris until I was 10. So I was already too old to learn how to make a yogurt cake in school. <laughs> because in France, you learn how to make a yogurt cake in maternelle, which is kindergarten. And it is really their version of our Toll House cookie in that it is iconic and it is everybody knows it. And it really does become a back pocket recipe. So if you walk by a little maternelle, a little nursery school in France, and you look in the window, you might see a group of kids with just a bowl and a little yogurt pot. And the little yogurt pots are either glass or ceramic, now plastic, but they're all about half a cup. And they will dump the yogurt into the bowl, and then they will use that yogurt jar as a measuring cup and measure the rest of ingredients. And then they can whisk and whisk and whisk and pour it into a pan and bake it. And it is truly that simple. But what I love is that once you have that back pocket recipe, which everybody does, then you can spend your life riffing on it. So pretty much everybody in France knows how to make a yogurt cake. And then you can add anything from, you know, a Moroccan spice mix like Razel Hanout to some elderflower water or some rose water or some orange blossom water or some Grand Marnier or throw in chocolate chips or nuts or berries, whatever it is that you want to do, that cake will hold it. It's just a brilliant recipe. It's a brilliant, structurally sound recipe. Yeah, it occurred to me I could not hurt it. It was not going to fail on me. So now I'm going to venture forth. But when you were growing up in Paris, were you conscious of how sort of elegantly simple this was? It was a complete revelation to me, and I'm sure to many readers, who indeed we think of passing those windows, those patisseries and thinking, oh my gosh, I couldn't do this. And yet you're coming with a totally counter message that they cook with simple elegance, as I guess they do most things, and that we all can do that. Absolutely. You know, after school, there's something called goûter, which is essentially snack time or, you know, in Britain, it would be tea time. It's usually around four o'clock. And it really is when the French do break and they take a little cake and a little coffee or a little bit of tea. And that is something that I had after school at friends' houses. So I, I kind of knew that there were these amazingly simple cakes that were kind of always on the kitchen counter, what I suppose we would call them as a keeper cake. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't at that point really know how simple they were to make, except that, you know, everybody seemed to be able to make them. But of course, when I arrived, I looked around and I thought, wow, everybody can just do everything, <laughs> you know, because, you know, whether it's tying a scarf or, or whipping together this incredible meal. Exactly. And, and then as I really began to understand more about the French, I realized going back to this idea of frugality and practicality, that the reason the French are able to eat well every single day is in fact because they are frugal and practical. It's not in any way to say that they are austere or depriving themselves, absolutely the contrary. They're cooking really beautifully and very simply so that they can do it every day, so that it doesn't require only cooking on a weekend to actually eat deliciously. And I kind of loved that that instinct. And most 
French food, most home cooking in France is really, really simply done. The other thing that really struck me there was that the French don't care about novelty in the way that we do in America. So it's already an enormous difference, right? The French are so deeply connected to their history and proud of their culinary history that they are not looking to reinvent the wheel when they make dinner. I mean, I've never been to a French dinner party and seen the the host kind of come out and say, oh, you know, I bought this new chef book and I'm, I've spent the last three days baking this extravagant meal that I've never made before and maybe it's going to work and maybe it's not and looks incredibly stressful. What I really see is a very, very easy, if you're invited into somebody's home, it means either it's a formal event, which is a whole different thing, but normally it's casual. And the idea is is that you want to be with your friends, you want to have a glass of wine, and, and you want things to be simply done, but you also want to feed people the things that they love, the things that they know, the things that are traditional. But you want to do them with a real elegance and great ingredients and a sense of care. Yeah. Which is totally different from the idea of trying to wow your guests (laughs) with something that is just on trend. The French are not (laughs) interested as much in what is on trend. You know, you make it sound so appealing and I'm smiling at myself when you use the word the wow factor because I have indulged in that kind of cooking. And what I thought about when I read your book, not just about the cakes, but there's a lovely um, description in there of you and your husband spending a weekend with friends who were moving back to Paris. And you spent two or three days with them in a country setting, and you all sort of made dishes and contributed. And I read it with such envy, the lack of stress, the participation, the gentle elegance. And I thought, No, that didn't happen in my house. And having just been through a holiday and facing another one, I am determined not just to use recipes from your book, but to take the style and the ethos of it, if I can a little, and calm down some. So I think that the message that pervades the book is that sense of sort of an ease and a joy. And the other thing is it's not competitive. Every cooking show now is competitive. You know, the worst chef, the best chef, the top chef. It's not about the joy of feeding people, as you use the expression. It's about wowing people. And that you only really see in France um, among the pros. Mm-hmm. But but even among the pros, it's really, I would say it's Instagram that has created some of that competition. Mm-hmm. Recently, I interviewed a kind of the top patisserie in Paris last year. And, you know, they will post an image of a new dessert and immediately get 70,000 likes. And they've all said the same thing. They're exhausted by it because to them, it's not about baking. It's not about what they do. It is a need to to kind of to feed the beast. And and so that that is the only competition that I'm seeing. In New York, there's such intense competition because restaurants do fail so often. One of the reasons I think people have such incredible nostalgia for Paris and that that nostalgia is so beautifully fed every time you return so that when you return, you're almost enjoying your nostalgia kind of yeah. in advance of it. Things don't change as much. There's not the same competition. People will eat in their neighborhood Mm -hmm. unless they are 
going to a particularly formal meal, or if they're going to go see friends at a restaurant, they'll go to their friend's neighborhood. But it really is such a neighborhood city that there isn't quite that same competition that you have here. Uh, I think that that allows for a lot more freedom. The only real competition, again, I'm seeing is this crazy social media frenzy, which is making people competitive. Did you grow up with parents who cook or bake? My mother's an incredible cook and does not bake anything. So that is definitely, I think, where I came into the picture there. But uh, she's an amazing cook. And I was incredibly lucky. When we moved to Paris, the dollar was incredibly strong. And so Paris was much less expensive than New York. And we really were able to eat in pretty much all the great restaurants in the country. So I quickly grew to understand food and to really appreciate it. But the other great thing is I had this this great dog, Romeo, uh, <laughs> who came from Normandy, who's a 125 pound, a bouvier. And he and I would take these walks in the afternoon and Paris was much safer than New York also. And we would just literally go from patisserie to patisserie and they would give him a treat inevitably. And I would get something. And of course I was growing then, so that was helpful. But I also really began to understand the language of shopping for food in Paris. And I learned so much doing that. Because when you do go into, whether it's a cheese shop or a butcher or a fish shop, and you ask the right questions and you enter into a dialogue, you just get this extraordinary wealth of knowledge. I think some of those good things have permeated America. And I think during the pandemic, one of the things that interests me is that people dialed back at a great time for that. I think people reassessed, do I need to do that? Do I need to go to every trendy restaurant? We weren't going to restaurants at all. So it was a chance to dial back some. And I sense that less frenetic consumption, I guess I would say. Yes. And a lot of people fell totally in love with baking over the pandemic. And then I think there was a point where we all reached kind of maximum capacity at, at you know, in cooking um, yes. and needed a little bit of a break. And now I feel that we're kind of coming back and realizing, hey, we actually really do know how to feed ourselves well. And I think whether we're approaching a recession or already in a recession, certainly with inflation, there is a desire to turn back and open up the pantry and realize, wow, I have the five ingredients needed to make something that actually is a treat. That's a, that's a kind of a, a reward at the end of the day. Yeah. One of the things I love about the book, and I want to talk about the book specifically, is the, the lovely introductions to each recipe. They're so charming and so funny and so witty. There was a wonderful introduction to a chocolate loaf cake. I believe on page 122, that I read out loud to somebody. It made us laugh. And it was the kind of thing that I love about the book is that it's a book I take to bed and read. I love the way you set up each recipe with a small story. And it, it just is so winning. So pick out one. I just picked out the one, the 122 one because I loved it. But there are any number that you could read. I will read that. And thank you. I think that in this day and age when we can actually find a recipe online, you know, what we really want in a book is we want to be able to read it. And we also want to be able to see the scope of it. Yeah. And we also want to be able to see how we can play with a recipe. But uh, Pierre Arame, most of us might recognize the name, is one of the great petitiers of the world. Uh, he now runs an empire. He has started incredible trends. I'm now talking about trends, of course, but he started this beautiful macaron with rose and lychee and raspberry that became a sensation. He is a master at chocolate. Uh, now, being French, 
he does believe, and this I encountered in reading French cookbooks, they do expect you to really know how to cook. You know, you look at a, a French recipe and a French cookbook, and it, it just has the ingredients and maybe a couple quick lines, but it will not necessarily tell you the temperature of the oven or the size of the pan or what needs to be beaten to a stiff beak or anything. So I wanted to really demystify. So let me read this. When Pierre Hermé posted the barest details of this chocolate loaf cake he makes at home, his followers the world over entered un vrai folie. It was the early months of the pandemic and people were baking their way to some semblance of calm. But when one of the greatest pastry chefs the world has known simply says, to combine the ingredients in a bowl, mix and bake, we do need to stop and consider what level of expertise he thinks we're bringing to the table. So here's a version with some instruction and a few useful tips. You know, I immediately saw him in his white hat. You know, at the top of every recipe, there is that kind of anecdotal storytelling that I think is really one of the charming parts about the book. The other thing I love about the book is the choice to do drawings and not photographs. The drawings are sort of like color versions of a New Yorker cartoon to me. It had a sort of transportive magic to it. Was that your choice? It was absolutely my choice. So I wanted this book to be full of classic recipes. And yes, there are some recipes that are new and they certainly have been tinkered with for an American kitchen and, and ingredients. But I wanted this to be a book that would be as new in 10 years as it is today, or rather as classic in 10 years as I hope it is today. And so I didn't want it to be photographed because food photography, however beautiful, becomes old very, very quickly. And I also think that the reason people are scared of baking is they open up a beautiful cake book and inevitably there are these stunning decorations and you think, I'm never going to do that or I certainly don't have time to do that. Or maybe you do it and it doesn't look the way it does in the picture. Of course it doesn't look the way in the picture. And I wanted to free people up. Listen, there are only so many images you want of a eight or nine inch round, you know, <laughs> golden brown <laughs> cake or a nine by five loaf. And, you know, one of the things about the way that the French do bake at home is they rarely decorate. And part of that is because they are not looking for something to be overly sweet or overly iced. When the French cook, they are really looking for nuance, and it's true of savory and sweet. And so when they bite into, let's say, an apple cake, what they want to do is taste apple. They don't want to taste sugar as that first sensation. It could be hazelnut. It could be chocolate. Whatever the flavor is, it shouldn't be masked or upstaged by sugar. And so almost all of these cakes are really simple one-layered cakes that maybe have a little bit of powdered sugar, maybe have a dusting of cocoa powder, maybe have a drizzle of ganache or a soaking syrup or a little glaze that takes two minutes to make. But they're not overly sweet. And so they're simple and they have a really simple beauty to me. But it was certainly not something that I felt needed to be photographed. I love illustrated books and I wanted to create a sense of Paris and fun and I also wanted that in part because mm -hmm. this is a really, really heavily researched book. I mean, it's almost 400 pages. I spent a lot of time looking into recipes dating back to the Middle Ages, but I didn't want it to feel that way. I wanted it to feel like it was breezy and fun and had levity to it. 
Two things I just want to observe the thing about the sweetness because it was one of the things I really liked about the yogurt cake. I mean, the cakes that I have made, the triple layer chocolate with four sticks of butter and mounds of icing, I just won't make those again. They're almost sickening in the sweetness. And the other thing, one of my pet things that you mentioned is not putting cinnamon in an apple cake because cinnamon is such a strong flavor. And we have a fight in my family about putting cinnamon in things. And I've always said, no, no, no more cinnamon. <laughs> so now I have you to quote as the authority. on Hold the cinnamon and also often hold the vanilla. I want people to realize that when you do reach for an ingredient, it's got to be intentional. And I think our muscle memory is if we're starting to make a cake or a cookie or whatever it is, we immediately, you know, we get the flour and we get the sugar and the baking powder and we get the vanilla and and it's almost an expected thing. The French really do, when they make vanilla cakes, they really push the vanilla and they will do, you know, a vanilla extract, vanilla bean, vanilla paste. They'll go all the way and it will really be a vanilla cake. But if they're not making a vanilla cake, they might not add vanilla. (laughs) The same way that they won't add cinnamon when baking an apple cake necessarily. And suddenly when you start removing ingredients, you get this beautiful purity of flavor. And then you don't need all the sugar because instead of the sugar, what you are is you're getting real flavor and it's satisfying. Yeah. How did you pick which recipes you were going to use and how, in fact, did you find them? Because the selection, I mean, there are a lot of recipes, but it's really well curated. I really wanted to make sure that I had, first of all, covered an entire year. So I definitely wanted to make sure that I had fall recipes and spring recipes and I also I wanted to make sure that I covered all the holidays. I wanted to make sure that the Bouche de Noël, which is that iconic, iconic mm. French Christmas law cake, was in here. And the Epiphany cake, which is a cake that really everybody eats on January 6th, no matter their religion. But for the Bouche de Noël in particular, I, I wanted to demystify and, and explain that if you don't spend all day making little meringue mushrooms and things like that, but you basically focus on this beautiful <laughs> sponge cake, which is very simple to make, and you roll it up and you fill it with whipped cream or ganache, you know, it's so simple. And suddenly you have a bouche de Noël so that, you know, I wanted it to feel extremely accessible in that way. I knew what the classics were. I knew what needed to be included, I suppose. But then there were some surprises. Uh, Les Nonettes, which is a recipe that dates back to the 1200s and comes from a convent uh, near Dijon and is a recipe that I had had, but didn't know the name of and didn't know the history of and immediately wanted to look into that. And then there were other recipes that, you know, that I realized celebrate something that there, there's so much meaning behind. There's an almond cake that is meant to celebrate a victory, a French victory in Genoa, where the French managed to stay alive and not starve thanks to the almonds they had. And so they created an almond cake in celebration of the victory. Where do you find, for example, the Bouche de Noël recipes? I mean, there are a zillion out there. How do you pick the one you want? And is it free access? Are these things just you can you can take them? Okay, that's a that's an interesting question. A lot of these recipes are based on ratios, right? So, mm-hmm. for example, a four-fourths, which is similar to our pound cake, the recipe is and has been for hundreds of years that you you weigh the eggs in their shells and you use that weight to weigh the flour and the sugar. And so it's, these are not chef secrets in a way. Got it. 
The same with the genoise. These are ratios very, very much of, you know, you, you usually weigh one ingredient and it usually is the eggs because farmers never knew how many eggs they were going to have. <laughs> so they would base the rest of the weights of their ingredients upon how many eggs they could use. So a lot of those are very, very simple. I think what is important in writing a recipe is not just then finding in the ones that are not as simple as ratios. It's really experimenting until you find what works. And do you do all that experimenting? I do. I do. I do. And then, you know, of course, I was also working with different flour and different baking powder. And I was testing with both European butter and American land lakes. Uh, French flour, the French flour that there's so many French flours, but the flour that most people kind of have in their pantry to bake with is actually closer to cake flour. So I was definitely testing. And I have a great intern as well who also tests everything. So everything's double tested. But yes, I made a lot of cakes, I have to say, <laughs> because if it doesn't work out, you know, you try it again until it does. And then I would say the surprising addition for a lot of people is the chapter on savory cakes. But I knew from the get-go that I wanted that because they're fantastic. And they actually were our pandemic lunch. And those are these, they're they're like quick cakes. They're great cakes that are made in a nine by five loaf pan. And they're everything you want in a sandwich put into the batter. So if you love ham and, grilled ham and cheese, maybe you'll just throw the ham and throw the cheese into the batter and you will get this incredibly moist, rich, yummy version of a, of a grilled cheese. And it doesn't need to be refrigerated. It can go in a lunchbox. It can go in a tote bag. Um, it can stay on the counter for a couple of days and stay moist. You can toast it on the fourth day. You can cut it up for cocktails. Repurposing. Yeah. It was something I, I wanted people to know about. What makes a good cook? What feel, what smell, what sensibility, what gift does it take to be a good home cook? I would say two things. I think for cooking, it is really about having confidence in your ingredients, mm -hmm. getting good ingredients, and then having confidence in them, and doing as little as possible to them. I can't remember the, the line in the play Amadeus, but there was a line about somebody having too many notes in their music. And uh, I don't think it was Mozart, but, but I think with cooking, what you want is you want to do the minimal amount necessary to bring to life the essence of whatever it is that you're cooking. And very often it's when you start doing too much that you get away from yourself. So that that confidence is something that takes a while to to have. And I think when you do need to mask ingredients, it's because the ingredients aren't good. And sometimes we all need to do that. Uh, but generally, it's doing as little as possible. In baking, however, I think there's something else that I really learned to trust in, in doing this book. And that's a sense of smell, not just a sense of smell of, oh, this is wonderful, but really... <laughs> the sense of smell of the cake is done. Mm. You know, the timer might not have gone off, but the cake smells the way the cake should smell. It, it smells as if it is baked. And once you start recognizing that cue, again, it's, it's, you get this confidence because you know that you can walk around the kitchen and do other things and your nose will be working and you will in fact smell when something hits its peak. I always find this, for example, when steaming artichokes and who knows how long to steam artichokes. They're different sizes, different right. whatever. But there's a moment when you're steaming an artichoke when the artichoke actually smells exactly the way it should. <laughs> and at that point, you do need to turn the stove off and immediately take the artichokes out. 
I think the thing that's fun to share a book or this book with kids is to begin to instill that confidence, but also the sense of joy. When I'm listening to you about the senses and smell, I think we get away from the idea that cooking is about all the senses, that it should be sensual and can be messy and can be all kinds of things that I think if you're fastidious or frantic, you lose that sense. And one of the things that comes through in your book is joy. Joy. And there's also something meditative about it. You know, my mother is a journalist and part of the reason I think she is such a good cook is that when she was writing an article and needed to think, needed to to let something percolate for a little while before she finished a sentence or a paragraph, she would go in and cook. And it's not mindless in any way, but it is almost a kind of muscle memory of, say, stirring risotto that actually lets your mind wander in a good way, that lets you think through things. And so I, I think there's a reason why so many writers cook. I mean, almost every writer I know and almost every artist I know cooks, unless they have somebody else in the house who cooks. It is very, very connected. And I think it is about that thinking time. And I think particularly because we all work at home, it's about finding something in the house that actually allows for that thought. It's absolutely true, Alexandra, and I had never sort of computed it, but all of the writers that I have talked to, they are engaged usually with cooking, not just with eating. (laughs) One of the things that I was struck by in listening to you is how far back some of these recipes go. You know, we always think, certainly in this country, that we've discovered everything or rediscovered or maybe, but you have recipes that you're referencing that are centuries old. And they feel really modern. And I think that was one of the things that really amazed me is when you look at the recipes that that the French make, for example, maybe it's a simple almond cake and you add a little bit of orange blossom water. You know, that in America is a very recent idea, this idea of using almond flour, this idea of using the Middle Eastern floral waters, the idea of a very simple, you know, one layer cake seems very modern. But in fact, the most contemporary recipes turned out to be among the oldest. And we've kind of come, I think in many ways in America, at least we have kind of come back to that simplicity. Part of that is health conscious, but part of that is just changes in taste. But the French have been baking in many ways the same way for so long. And one of the things that, that struck me again and again and again was just how few recipes use baking powder because the recipes existed before baking powder. So they relied on eggs to give lift and it works. Do you love writing about food? I do. I do. I do. I love writing. I mean, I do consider myself somebody who writes about food almost more than somebody who writes recipes, Mm -hmm. although I do both. But I love it. I think that there should be something kind of fun and loving about it. Read something else for us because I love to hear your voice because you are a writer. So read something else you love. I just visited my old school two weeks ago in Paris. And whenever one visits something from one's childhood, I think, you know, in your mind, these places are so big. Mm -hmm. You know, I thought that the courtyard of my school was the size of a football field. And I I went back and of course, it's, you know, a third of a football field at at the most. But I did ask some of the kids about the the food, which is apparently just as terrible as it was way back when. But this is about uh, clafoutis. 
My first memories of clafoutis are of the chilled leaden squares that were served in the cafeteria at my school in Paris. They were rubbery and tasteless and nearly turned me off this classic forever. Roughly two decades later, I was at a friend's for dinner, happily chatting away, when I smelled something wonderful wafting in from her kitchen. A bit like a pancake, a bit like a flan. It had notes of vanilla and cooked cream and filled the room with a soft cloud of comfort. Moments later, I was tasting a soft pudding-like clafoutis. By the second bite, I was a convert, but not entirely so. What I came to realize is I don't love the classic choice of cherries in the batter. I prefer either a berry with just enough suggestion of tartness to cut through the richness of the milk and the cream, or the tenderness of a stone fruit, ripe and sliced, or autumn apples or winter pears with a little liqueur tossed in for good measure. No doubt I simply can't get past those early memories, but you were free, so cherry away. <laughs> I actually prefer it without cherries as well, so I'm happy. I'm, I'm happy about that as well. Well, it's been such a pleasure talking to you and having your book, which I have already ordered for family members and others. Um, Thank you. Yeah, of course. And I don't mean it falsely. You know that. You know me well. We have spent a lot of time together at the Sun Valley Writers Conference and um I think, how many years have we been going, or should we not say? It has been at least 26, 27, 28 years. I know, it's been amazing. Well, amazing. in addition to admiring your work, we've had a great friendship, yes. and this has been a joy to talk to you. An absolute joy for me. Thank you, Anne. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Beyond the Page. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating or review. A good one, we hope. To catch all the latest from the Sun Valley Writers' Conference, be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you'd like to listen to this conversation in its entirety, or to any of our other talks, you can find them at svwc.com. I'm John Burnham Schwartz. Until next time. Thank you.